these, these government officials who are touting this and the, and the news articles that are touting these narratives, they're coming from a place that has sound financial rails and a relatively stable currency. So you take that same scenario and you go to developing world in Africa in a place where that's experiencing multiples, you know, high inflationary numbers that their currency is losing purchasing power every single minute that you hold it, then all of a sudden your value, the value proposition for Bitcoin becomes a lot higher. And yes, I think the energy is worth it. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Yo, 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 welcome back into Blue Collar Bitcoin, ladies and gentlemen. This week, Daz, Seb, Josh, and myself, Dan, are back for installment number nine of our Bitcoin Basics series. If you missed any of our previous chats in this series, the entire thing can be found linked in one place on our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io, under the Bitcoin Resources tab. This discussion was titillating. The focus was on common Bitcoin misconceptions. The four of us explored and busted through numerous common pieces of Bitcoin FUD, including Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, Bitcoin wastes energy, governments will ban Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a bubble, Bitcoin is too volatile, Bitcoin can be copied, Bitcoin is used by criminals, and more. And per usual, this episode is sprinkled with strong sexual innuendo. So with school back in session, play this episode at your own risk during a carpool. Throughout this series, we have frequently talked about Bitcoin self-custody. Although this is doable for all, we understand the trepidation and apprehension that comes with taking control of your Bitcoin. If you do need help with this process, Daz and Seb have just stood up a new service at Looking Glass Education called Coddle. If you're looking for personal support on your self-custody journey, visit lookingglasseducation.com and click on the Coddle tab, C-O-D-L. Speaking of self-custody, the hardware wallet or signing device we utilize here at BCB is none other than the cold card made by CoinKite. It's Bitcoin only. It's ultra secure. It's easy to use. It has the option to be truly air-gapped. It's got specialized chips specifically designed to store secrets. This beautiful little fucker does it all. If you've been delaying this self-custody process, just stop. Get off your ass and at least start exploring. You can use code BCB, that's code BCB, for an arousing discount on one of these calculators. And lastly here before we get into it, a reminder that Bitcoin is more than a protocol. It's more than an asset. It's a freaking movement. Get out there and go meet some plebs. Go to a conference. Bitcoin Amsterdam is coming up October 12th through the 13th, and Bitcoin 2024 is next July in Nashville. You can get 10% off tickets for either of these conferences with code, you guessed it, BCB. Daz, Seb, Josh, welcome back. Greetings. Four cooks back in the kitchen to dish up, hopefully, a delightful Bitcoin Basics cuisine. This is episode numero nueve, number nine. Can't believe we did nine of these already. It's crazy. Yeah. Today's uh, goal is FUD, misconceptions of Bitcoin. We were all for stressing before we started because we're like, holy shit, this could go for six hours. We're going to try to set these cans up on the log and, and knock them off. There's just so many ways this thing can fail that we don't, we, you know, it could take forever. <laughs> yeah. Seb, you got a story for us, you said, man. You should hit that. Let us, let us hit us with that story. So long story short, I help out. There's a family about 30 minutes away. They've got a kid who's in a wheelchair. 
And I go down about 30 minutes, take him swimming like once or twice a week. So I'm at the swimming pool, doing our thing, taking him swimming, throwing him off the diving board and stuff. And uh, I get back to the changing rooms and my phone is in my other pocket when I get back. And I was like, fuck, someone's stolen my freaking keys and wallet. They went through the, the changing rooms and stole my keys and wallet. I was like, God damn it. So I went up to the front desk and was just like, hey guys, I just had my uh, keys and wallet stolen. I'm just going to check my car's still there. Walk up front, my car's still there. So that's all good. Walk back to the front desk, talking to the front desk. They're like, we're going to call the police anyway, just because there's been a theft. The policemen arrive and they're just like, oh, so which car is yours just so we know? And I was just like, oh, I'll show you guys. And I walk out into the car park. It's like, they stole my car. And so they basically went into my locker, took out my wallet, took out the car, stole my car. And then I was stranded at the swimming pool with this, with this kid in a wheelchair, had to call his dad to come pick us up and it took 40, uh, 48 hours. But the police ended up uh, finding the car parked somewhere and staking it out. They didn't catch the person, but they uh, found the car. They used my credit card, charged my credit card. It's been like a wild 24 hours, 48 hours. Holy shit. This just happened a couple of days ago. This just, I just got the car back yesterday. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry to hear that. I thought you were going to say like, oh, I thought the car was stolen. It wasn't, but someone actually took your shit, stole your car, stole your wallet, your credit cards, oh, everything. Absolutely everything. That's a hell of an ordeal. It's good that you didn't have a cold card in there or anything, right? That's where I keep a hardware wallet. Seb in a previous life must have punched a whole bag of puppies because he has the worst <laughs> luck for how much good he tries to do in the world. Sometimes the world just turns around and just likes to test this poor dude. Wait, while we're on the topic of stories, you posted something about a bear around your house the other day, Seb. What was, what was going oh, on that, there? That's a, another story. <laughs> I'm doing the dishes. Yeah, tell us I'm the story. I'm doing the dishes and um, <laughs> I'm doing the dishes. Daz is on the phone. He's watching me doing the dishes. It's just like standard chat. And all of a sudden, my dog just comes like, rah, 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 past the window. And I'm like, Bah. And then bear comes running by. And I'm just like, oh my God, they're chasing bears. So anyway, I come running outside. And I'm like, <laughs> Kyber, which is my dog. And I was like, get inside. Kyber comes running inside. And then I was like, Daz, have you ever seen a bear? And he's like, no. And I was like, I'll see if I can poke my head around the corner. And so I'll, I'll show you the bear while we're on the video chat. So I poke my head around the corner. The bear is like right there. And the bear just looks up at me and starts charging me. And uh, I like jumped over my barbecue, ran inside. And then the bear's just like staring at the door. And that's like, you okay? And I'm like, oh, that was close. <laughs> Holy shit, man. You got to be shitting me. You got rushed by a black bear on and video And his car got stolen dads. in the last week, man. That's some bad luck. No fucking way, dude. I don't believe that shit. No, I was just about to say to him, man, that thing looks like it's coming. And then next thing it's running at the camera. And I'm like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> shit. Can, can you imagine watching your buddy just get eaten alive by a black bear? Like, hey, you remember those, look, you remember those looking glass education dudes? They were pretty cool. One of them got eaten by a fucking bear on video in front of the other one. Daz watched Seb get eaten by a bear live. Dumb ways to die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love you to tears, Seb, but that's so out there that that would almost be cool if you got eaten by a bear. Like, we all got to go somehow. That's my gravestone. Yeah. Wouldn't be horrible, Josh. You get eaten by a fucking grizzly or black bear on video in front of me. I mean, I'm not sure the experience during the uh, consumption would be all that great, especially because he's probably not starting with anything vital. Like... <laughs> He's probably going to wear you like a puppet for like half an hour before he finally finishes oh, yeah. you off. Uh, remember, that, remember that Revenant scene, the bear attack? Yeah, dude. I was just thinking that. That is wild, that movie. And apparently that's fairly realistic as to what happened. That dude crawled like 50 <sighs> miles out of the wilderness after getting just mauled uh, by a bear. That's a man right there. I, I went to Glacier National Park in Banff. I've been to Glacier a couple times in Banff. And my wife and I did a trip up there shortly after I saw that movie. 
and I couldn't get out of my head. I remember being on like the Grinnell Glacier hike. We saw grizzlies up on the mountain. There was another scare with the group in front of us. That that scene that scene hits for anyone that spends time in the wilderness and sees those those creatures. Yeah, that was filmed like thirty minutes south where my car was just stolen, like two minutes from where my car was stolen. And I know that when they were filming that, they were filming in this area that has got unbelievable rock climbs, but you could see the chalk on the holds from the climbers. And so the the filming crew were just like. We don't want to be able to see the chalk in the background of these shots. So they went and put cement over the holds of these like world-class climbs and the climbers were in oh. like uproar and they, they oh, were pissed. pissed. Wow. That's pretty fucked up, That's... man. <laughs> fuck Hollywood. Yeah, fuck Hollywood. All right, guys, we got to get into some FUD today. Um, this is an episode all about it from top to bottom. Whatever we want to shoot, none of us know what the other guys have got lined up. Probably a lot of the same stuff, but we have quite extensive lists on our own. So we're going to be surprised by who takes what and where this starts. Uh, who wants to jump in and take the first shot at it? First crack. All right, Seb. I think I'm going to pick you just because <laughs> you've had such a shitty week of a bear attack and a stolen car. Set up the pinata. I've got my stick ready. Okay. I would say starting with like the worthless one. It is... Bitcoin is not backed by anything. Bitcoin is worthless. Worthless. Now, many people would argue that because Bitcoin, it doesn't have a US army behind it. It doesn't have, it's not backed by gold. It doesn't have any of these so-called traditional things that are deemed of value backing Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is worthless. And I'm sure that you guys probably agree with me. I think it's important to kind of discuss this idea, which I like to refer to as kind of the subjectivity of value. Right which is that all value is subjective. What you deem a value is different than what I deem a value. Now, to give you an example, if I have a down jacket and I live in freaking Siberia, that down jacket is probably worth quite a bit of money. If I have that same down jacket and I live in the middle of the Sahara Desert, I have no use for that down jacket. And so that's kind of highlighting that depending on the environment, different things are worth different amounts. And it's the same with money. What makes Bitcoin valuable is that Bitcoin gives us a way to trustlessly and permissionlessly transact our value across borders. Now, that may not be valuable to someone who lives in New York, who is a billionaire, who has an in with the banks and gets cheap fees and whatever, and has never had a problem with confiscation of his money. But if all of a sudden you are someone who is living in Africa, who has had massive rampant inflation, you've had your bank close and confiscate your money, you're not able to transact, then all of a sudden, the benefits of Bitcoin start to be pretty mesmerizing and powerful. So like there, I want to start, but you guys can kind of take it where you want to go with that. Oh, I had uh, intrinsic value on the top of my list as well and had quite a few mentions of gold in there. And a way you could approach that as well is to ask somebody who would submit that gold has intrinsic value, but Bitcoin does not, is to ask them, well, what gives gold intrinsic value exactly? Because I mean, short of saying, well, you can use it in electronics, gold really doesn't have any use besides jewelry or ornate objectivity. Like you can put it on your, around your neck, you can put it on your finger, but it is and has always been just something to transact value. And the only reason that is, is because it's a rare item that has built this network effect over thousands of years to remain valuable. So people just have used it inherently to transact value. So it's, it's really all about network effects in the end. So it's subjectivity, rarity, network effects. It's like the trilemma or trifecta there that Bitcoin also has. It just hasn't built nearly the amount of time that gold has had so far to prove itself, which it's in the process of doing. There's just no way to rush that. And it's, it's interesting. Like I read a thread a little while back and actually, to be honest, I think it was Naval Harari who sent, who posted this thread. 
And although I tend to, I'm not the biggest fan of kind of the World Economic Forum and the stuff that Naval does, he posted a pretty interesting thread that was talking about how money is merely just a story. And the most powerful stories are the ones that win. And this goes back to that mm-hmm. subjectivity of value. If you're able to tell someone's story that resonates with them, that aligns with their values and their beliefs, the more powerful that story, the more they'll believe in it and the more they'll put value into this thing, such as say Bitcoin or the US dollar or any other currency. And so this is where you can have a currency like the US dollar that may be the king right now, but as that story starts to diminish, as the government continues to debase the currency, as they start to lose power in this kind of this global race that we're seeing right now, that story is going to diminish and people are going to lose trust in that story and move their money elsewhere. And so ultimately, whatever succeeds in this monetary domain, whether it's gold, whether it's US dollar, whether it's Bitcoin, has the most powerful story that aligns with their values. The other thing that's really interesting, um, and we were having a discussion the other day, Seb, with another solid Bitcoiner, Peter Dunworth and Andy um, from the BTC Advisor, and he put it in a really interesting way that the industrial use of a certain metal um, or a monetary good, the higher the industrial use case, the actual worse it is as a monetary good. Um, so you often hear mm. that uh, you know gold has its industrial use as what gives it intrinsic value, where you can say, well, copper is you know a great example of something that has higher utility as an industrial use, but it makes a mm. less good money. So you've got this sliding scale between you know if you've got your industrial use on this side of your axis on your Y, and then you've got your uh, monetary good on your or your intrinsic value of your monetary good um, on, on the bottom scale. Then you see that copper's up in the top left, high industrial use, but a low market cap in in terms of as a, as a monetary unit. Uh, and then you know you can look at silver has slightly less industrial use and a slightly better monetary premium. Uh, and then you've got gold, a lot less industrial use compared to those other two, but a very high monetary good. So it stands to reason that you would think that Bitcoin would be a more phenomenal monetary good because it has less of an industrial use and other purpose. Its sole purpose is to be a money. So as you look towards other um, elements within the periodic table, it really is a case for its being element zero because it has zero weight. Uh, and you know, when we look at scarcity, that's what makes our money inherently good as a store of value is its inherent scarcity. And we've never had a, a commodity whether it be digital or physical, that is finitely scarce. We don't know how much gold there is. We don't know how our ability to extract gold out of the sea. I think we've touched on this a few times during these various pods that we've done. The fact that it, um, Bitcoin in itself has zero utility in the industrial world actually makes it a much better money than anything else that we've had. Well said on all fronts. Here's a few of my statements regarding the Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. I like how you started, Seb. All forms of money, all forms of value transfer that we use are abstractions, they're fictions. I think it can actually be argued that Bitcoin is one of, if not the most real money in existence. What is more real? A frumpy, neutered, roly-poly black bear in a zoo or that thing you encountered in your backyard that survives out in the wild? Unlike fiat, And unlike a lot of centralized monetary systems, Bitcoin has monetized completely on its own, totally organically. And for that reason, it has been selected on the free market. And I think it can be argued that it is more real and more robust than the fabrications that exist in central banking and fiat. The other thing is just to say it has no value completely disregards 
what makes for good monetary technologies. We've covered this in previous episodes, but when you talk about divisibility, scarcity, liquidity, fungibility, portability, and many more, Bitcoin checks these boxes and demonstrates that it has a lot of profound characteristics that make it extremely useful and usable as money. There are very real drivers of demand to kind of piggyback on my last point. And I've made this statement before. It reflects this slide that I put together a while ago, but it's frictionless money in an age of a ton of fragmented fiat currencies. There's 180 fiat currencies. There's, there's an obvious need for a digitally native, interoperable global value transfer. Bitcoin solves that problem. It's unconditioned and permissionless in an age of increasing surveillance and censorship. It's anti-fragile juxtaposed against one of the most highly levered financial environments we've ever been in. And it's the hardest money in human history at a time when money is maybe most soft. The last thing I'm going to say on this front is that saying that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value is a very, very first world statement, as has been alluded to already. There's this piece Lynn Alden wrote. We'll link it down in the show notes. I think the title, it's one of her monthly newsletters, The World's Money Problem. And she starts out this piece asking a question. Very challenging question for anyone that knows anything about global finance. She says, imagine you live in a developing country with an ongoing severe currency devaluation problem, which exists all over the place. You want to sell your existing home, hold it in some stable liquid value, and then probably buy a different home in two years. What do you hold it in? When you really get down to to answering this question, you realize that that list gets really small and Bitcoin gets really bright and noticeable. So if you're a refugee fleeing a country, if you're a small business owner in a country with hyperinflating currency, if you're not privied to first world financial products, Bitcoin makes more sense more quickly, in my opinion. You bring up such a good point, which is the fact that I was mentioning kind of talking about the story, but the story is also tied in with the characteristics. And so the story has to align with the characteristics. For you to have a strong story, you have to naturally meet the characteristics of which are in your story. And so Bitcoin claims to be uh, permissionless and trustless and scarce and whatnot. Whereas when we look at the US dollar, at one point, yes, the US dollar held value. And it was one of the dominant players in the global uh, currency race and whatnot. But over time, the story is slowly diverging from the characteristics it claims to be. And I think that's where it's slowly losing that race. And that's where Bitcoin is kind of being able to kind of step up and step up as people recognize actually it's staying true to its values at which it kind of portrays. There's a quote from Satoshi, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. He talks about as a thought experiment, imagine there was a base metal as scarce as gold, but with the following properties, boring gray in color, not a good conductor of electricity, not particularly strong, but not ductile or easily malleable either, not useful for any practical or ornamental purpose and one special magical property can be transported over a communications channel. That's it. I mean, that is, that was from 2010, (laughs) that quote. Yep. So that's the end end of the podcast, guys. We're done? For sure. (laughs) Saying that Bitcoin has no value and then realizing it's the first real solution to a global digital asset that's neutral, that can be transported at the speed of light. Nothing else is really competing on this front. It's just comical. I mean, I'm not saying Bitcoin's guaranteed to succeed. I'm just saying saying that it's not solving any problems and has no value is an asinine statement that's just indicative of no research. Yeah. All right. Who's up next? Daz, take us. Pinata number two. Bitcoin wastes energy. So one of my favorite ones, obviously, Sparky, engineering background. Um, 
So very similar to what we were just talking about, like defining value is value is subjective. So is energy use is very, very subjective. Mm. And when you start to hear these arguments, particularly from when it's coming from a government official around my use of energy is very, very, I think, authoritarian to a degree to be questioning how people use energy. So I don't go into your home and I don't see how many hours of YouTube you're racking up. Or Xbox. Or Xbox. How much energy is your Xbox wasting, man? Yeah. Or porn. Ooh, that sh- which shall not be said. We don't watch porn. The king daddy of digital energy, digital energy, quote unquote, waste. And I, and I think it's one step removed. When you, when you start thinking about YouTube and Xbox and all of these things, it's like, well, my phone doesn't use a lot of energy itself when I'm viewing this thing. But it's the servers on the back end that are churning away really better. Because computational power is expensive. It is, does take a lot of energy. And that's what the, I guess it ties back into uh, a little bit of the previous discussion around the value proposition behind what makes Bitcoin valuable is the fact that it does take a significant amount of energy to secure it. And that's, we've spoken about this in the past in pods is that's inevitably what it does actually give it intrinsic value is the fact that it, you have to expend energy, you have to do the work in order to be able to win the right to obtain the blockchain, uh, the, the block reward for the computational power that, and to win the right to append a new block to the blockchain to include all the transactions. And that what is what makes it inherently scarce and valuable is the fact that I've had to do computational work. So it can't be co-opted. It can't be, uh, you know, nobody can copy, paste, hack it. Otherwise, that's what makes it secure. And when you do compare it against other industries and other uses of energy, it actually does pale in comparison. Like it, their fav- the favorite ones that you see in the in the mainstream news articles is that it uses the same amount of energy as this particular country or or whatnot. So you see in those comparisons all the time. But when you start to look at what other indus- industrial uses it compares to, it actually pales in comparison. Stuff like Christmas lights. Like what is Christmas lights ultimately doing apart from? Um, you know, some people find value in that, right? It's a, a subjective value. I enjoy going to look at Christmas lights. I enjoy jumping in the car, taking my kids around. So that's valuable to me. Is it something that I need to be waving a stick at, beating people down about that? Perhaps you're using too much energy in that thing. Like this is this is the argument that that I always come back to is around what is subjective value? What do you see value in? And the fact that Bitcoin can provide the payment rails and banking services for millions of people in developing countries, that's really where I take exception to that argument is because most of the time it's coming from a place of privilege. We, you know, the, the, these government officials who are touting this and the, and the news articles that are touting these narratives, they're coming from a place that has sound financial rails and a relatively stable currency. Mm. So you take those same... Uh, that same scenario and you go to developing world in Africa and in a place where that's experiencing multiples, you know, high inflationary numbers that their currency is losing purchasing power every single minute that you hold it, then all of a sudden your value, the value proposition for Bitcoin becomes a lot higher. And yes, I think the energy is worth it. I'll tee it over to you guys for for further discussion. I think you started in the perfect place, Daz. I'm going to, in a second, round into what I think are the decarbonizing, at least carbon neutral characteristics of Bitcoin. But the first place to start is exactly where you did, which is the subjectivity 
of the usefulness of energy consumption. People that think Bitcoin is wasteful think it's wasteful because they don't like it and they don't see the value in it. And if we start playing that game, we get into a regulatory energy future that nobody wants, where centralized policymakers are deciding what is and isn't a valid use of energy consumption. If the free market values such and such and is willing to, to pay for it, that should be allowed, Bitcoin included. And I don't like the fucking bachelorette, but I don't want to you know, regulate you out of watching The Bachelorette. I mean, how much fucking... This is where the other point you made, people are divorced from an understanding that digital things require energy. Netflix, your computer, AI, Google, they require energy. And, and a lot of people don't even understand that. So if you, that's a place to start when this begins is, is communicating. Digital things also consume energy. To, to pivot over to the, the carbon neutral, even decarbonizing effects, we talked a lot about this in our basics episode five. So I recommend people go back to that and listen. But the summary statement here, which isn't going to land if you haven't done any research on this, but is that Bitcoin does seek out the cheapest energy on the planet, which is often renewable. It uses an enormous amount of wasted energy. It can be symbiotic and co-located with, with many renewable projects, any application that requires heat. It's an incredibly unique buyer of energy. It's mobile. It's location agnostic. It's the pinnacle of flexible demand. It can be turned on and off whenever. It's also a load balancer. It can bolster grids. We've seen that happen down in Texas. Summary statement, if all that went over your head, it is a free market subsidy for renewables. And the evidence is increasingly showing that it is either carbon neutral or decarbonizing. So even when we start to admit that it does consume a lot of energy, it could be one of the key pieces of scaffolding that gets us to a more renewable rich future. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Um, I'll, I'll try and keep this succinct because I can talk about that particular subject for hours. But like, I'll give you a, a really good example of how it could potentially be the, um, the 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 missing puzzle piece for a renewable future. So Australia has, um, you know, where where I live, uh, has abundant resources of renewables. Um, there's been some very prominent chief scientists within the community who have put forth that if we're absolutely serious about going towards a 100% renewable future, like many argue against that even being possible, right? But say it is, you need a grid that's three times the size of your maximum demand. And what that basically translates to is you need a grid that is three times the size of your billable. You're only ever going to be at, get one third of your possible billable demand out of your whole grid network Massive waste. to be able to move forward and it's a waste and that is where the bitcoin mining proposition comes in it is like if if we've got to build a grid out three times the size of your billable max then that's going to have to be paid for either through directly through um your uh your energy bill or indirectly through taxation through um government subsidies so why wouldn't you overwhelmingly with arms wide open, welcome a uh, 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 flexible demand soak that can tie in and capitalize on those projects to soak up the excess two thirds when it's needed and then be able to switch off when it's not. What is up, folks? It's Dan here. And I'm going to take just a quick moment to talk to you about where Josh and I buy our Bitcoin. And that is at Swan Bitcoin. The two of us have now been dollar cost averaging on Swan for years. And here's why. It's user-friendly. The fees are low and transparent. Withdrawals are absolutely free. They offer attentive expert service, 
And Swan has a full suite of financial services, including an IRA product where you can roll a traditional or a Roth IRA into Bitcoin, Swan Private for high net worth individuals, and coming soon, Swan Vault for collaborative custody. In our view, Swan just gets it. They're focused on Bitcoin only. They provide really solid and ongoing education, and they strongly encourage self-custody. Maybe most importantly, it's low friction. Setting up and accessing a Swan account is so easy that it's boomer and firefighter proof. Keep that stack thick. That's T-H-I-C, no K at the end, at swan.com. And it's interesting because you, what you guys are talking about, because I think we, what many people miss when they're looking at Bitcoin is that we're not just using energy and then we've just got this consumable, which is the case in most situations where you turn on your Christmas tree lights, you get some lights for a few moments and then you turn off the lights and cool, you've used up a bunch of energy. But Bitcoin is also an alternative energy source. So when you are using energy to obtain Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not the end consumable. You can then use Bitcoin to then go and purchase other things. And it is a store of that energy in the meantime to go and purchase other things. And I think uh, one of the resources that really enlightened me of this was um, the What is Money episode with Michael Saylor. And he describes how Bitcoin is essentially a battery. Given that the only way to obtain, say, money is to work and be remunerated uh, in the form of money, basically we're expending time and energy to obtain money. We want to be able to store our time and energy in something so that we can then go and expend that time and energy at a future time and hopefully get paid or obtain something of equivalent value to the energy we expended. So in, in a sense, money is just a battery. And so Bitcoin, all it is is taking this energy that has got no other use that Daz is talking about, storing it in a monetary asset so we can then go and use it at some other point in time. So it's not a consumable. And I think many people miss mm. this point. We're not just burning Christmas tree lights for freaking 500 hours and we've got right. a nice show. And then we have no other use case. We can go and use it elsewhere. God damn it. That's a good point, dude. Well said. Well said. Uh, I wanted to swing this back to Austrian econ for a second, because one of the most basic tenets of Austrian economics is subjective value. And if we are talking about any entity, a bureaucracy, anybody being able to tell you how and when you can spend your energy, money, anything on a market product, they are massively messing up the, the mechanism for signaling through the market what is, what is valuable, mm -hmm. what is not valuable. And those types of mislocations in the market do build themselves into big problems later on, as we see with the way the Fed manipulates interest rates. Um, I just think this is a massive mistake for especially something as important as energy to be manipulated in this way um, as far as renewables. And then if we're allowed to spend money mining Bitcoin or not, the market or the individual decides what's best for themselves. If they've done the calculations for themselves to know that this is the best uh, allocation of my money, my time, whatever it is that resource is that they want to allocate, they should be doing it. And the greater market, everything works in lockstep to make it efficient. And efficiency is what makes everything better and more valuable for everybody. I think it could be said as I just try this idea out, potentially the most harmful base layer thing you can fuck with in the world today is value and money but maybe equal if not more dramatic is fucking with energy yeah centralized manipulation of money isn't going well it's already existing in energy but if we're to accelerate that fuckery is going to ensue and it already has i mean we've we saw even the last couple of years what happens in europe when basically decarbonizing before they're ready you get natural gas bills that are more than your mortgage and that's just a teaser into what happens if you really get going here. Yeah. 
And there's one more sort of point that ties into this energy piece before we um, rotate out, uh, and that's Bitcoin miners specifically being um, the, the carbon emissions focus that it gets. And it's a major misconception because ultimately it is just electronics. They don't emit carbon and they're no different than plugging in your electric vehicle. So often our electric vehicles, when we're plugging them in, gets this nice green framing. It's a green energy source. But at the end of the day, they're just plugging into the same energy sources as anything else. So on the back end, many um, layers removed from your outlet at your home is coal-fired plants, gas-fired plants, fossil fuels. Making up a lot of the, a lot of sorry, the puppies crying here. You might have heard that. Um, a, a lot of the energy base uh, still globally is dirty, dirty fossil fuels, right? So just plugging in a, a green uh, electric car is emitting the same amount of carbon as as, as plugging in a, a Bitcoin miner. So it is no less or no more. But if anything, Bitcoin miners specifically. Uh, the, the incentive structure around how it works, the profitability, makes you seek wasted or trapped energy sources. And more often than not, the larger mix of that energy source is renewables. So if anything, Bitcoin miners, are by their inherent uh, incentive structure around how it works, they're incentivized to have a higher mix of renewables than any other form of... Um, oh, and that's purely by the fact of co-locating with, with these renewables projects. Big one. Josh, you want to go with uh, Numero Trace here? Yeah, I'll pick up Numero Trace. Um, I think one of the most common ones, and, and it's a pretty easy one to spell at this point, but it's still one we have to talk about just because it is still in the common zetgeist of most people when they listen and hear about Bitcoin. It is the old classic, this is going to get banned by the government. Mm. And I mean, every day that goes by, I think we're all less and less apprehensive about that. I mean, some people never have had any apprehension about it. You understand that there's this game theoretic game play that goes on between countries like uh, El Salvador says Bitcoin's legal. United States says it isn't. There's going to be a mass exodus of at least people that have a significant amount of Bitcoin to get out of this country. And therefore, there is a tug and pull going on throughout the world. There's only a few countries that have actually banned it. China, I think it was Qatar. There was one other Middle Eastern country, probably Iran, I believe. None of them have done it successfully. This thing slips through the cracks everywhere. It's a very slippery hog, as we always say. There's no way you can cut your people off from the internet. There's just no way. There's VPNs. There's always somebody with the know-how and how to do it. I mean, just ask 12-year-old Josh if he could get a hold of porn when his parents banned it. I can guarantee you the answer to that was a resounding yes. And this is the same exact principle that's going Some on weird here. weird shit too. Real, <laughs> real weird shit, dude. I would not want to know what he was into at age 12. It was Holy pretty fuck. It was pretty legit. Um, okay, so <laughs> you're not going to be off my game here. This, uh, so a lot of people would say like 6102 uh, in the early 30s when they banned gold in the US. Like this could happen again. But we could go into a long-winded discussion about how different gold and Bitcoin are, how they you know, physically are obviously very different. One is... Uh, a piece of metal you have to hide in your house. The other one is digital that can be stored anywhere, including you know a tattoo on your body or something. Just it's what I'm saying is it's extremely easy to hide this because it doesn't even really exist physically. But yeah, without being put at gunpoint by your government officials or put in a cage for 30 years until you give up your um, your private keys, there's no one that's going to physically be able to take this from you. And 
one last point before we let this open this up to the crowd. A couple of the pro- well, I wouldn't say front runners. One front runner, DeSantis, is accepting Bitcoin for his election campaign, and I believe Kennedy is as well. When the when some of the most prominent front running presidential campaigns are accepting Bitcoin, it's hard for me to believe that it's going to get banned anytime soon. Yes, there was, and don't quote me on this. I remember reading an article a little while back, and I'm I'm no legal person, so I can't necessarily say whether this is 100 percent true or not. But given that Bitcoin falls under code and freedom of speech is obviously protected under the First Amendment, I believe through uh, the legislative system or the legal system that code is protected under free speech given that it's just freedom of thought. And so this has gone through the court in many instances when it comes to software and, and whatnot. And so I believe that when it comes to Bitcoin, it's going to be incredibly hard for the government to ban Bitcoin given that Bitcoin almost falls under free speech. Yeah, not only that, Seb, it's math. Like you dig enough layers d- d- down and basically all Bitcoin is, is math at its base layer. So to ban Bitcoin outright is to basically ban math. Um, so my ability to hold 12 or 24 words in my head is essentially just mathematics protecting my ability to move Bitcoin on the blockchain. So in order for you to ban it outright, like good luck, you can you can ban the on-ramps and off-ramps, you can introduce frictions to make it a little bit harder to interact with if your main goal is to move in and out of Bitcoin. But as you start to understand Bitcoin and what the value proposition that it actually means for me as a human to navigate through no matter what happens, mm. I don't plan on selling it anytime soon. And you know, as the demand increases globally, people's willingness to accept it for other goods and services is only ever increasing. Like it's it's slow now. Like I couldn't say that I could necessarily go out and buy all of the things I need for my family right now in Bitcoin, but it's ever increasing. We're starting to build communities around, uh, you know, parallel systems outside of government control money. That's an absolute use case that people are really starting to adopt. And I think you know, like I said before, government wants to ban it. Good fucking luck. Like. You can't stop it. You can't stop math. You can't stop freedom of speech. Yeah. The way I would put it is Bitcoin's not just an asset or a protocol. It's, it's a movement. It's a powerful idea. And trying to submerge that very large, well-inflated beach ball underwater, you can do it for a period of time, certainly not indefinitely. Some great points already. I mean, when people think that central governments around the world can collude and cooperate to ban this. I think they're just wildly optimistic about how capable these institutions are. I mean, dude, look at COVID the last year or two. Like, you think they can accomplish COVID. anything in a coherent manner? And even within their own government, they're a complete charade clown show. Right. Look at the war on drugs. I mean, we're talking about one of the hardest technologies to ban in human history. It's an encrypted, globally distributed digital ledger that can be stored in your head. I think there are short, medium-term risks, which maybe I'll round to in a second, but long-term, I mean, banning this thing is akin to banning the internet or something like that. It's just outlandish, especially when you have this mainstream momentum. This risk has dwindled significantly for me in the however many years we've been involved since 2017. I mean, you talked about politicians, Josh, but you got, you got huge asset managers I mean, I, back to the ETF and you know, yep. biggest asset managers in the world, right? You got S&P 500 companies. 
You got notable politicians. You got billionaires and huge money managers. Tudor Jones, Stan Drunkenmiller, Bill Miller, Kathy Wood, Jack Dorsey, the list could go on. The IRS has given it legitimacy with the commodity label. And there's just an increasingly large and wealthy voting block. And if you fuck with this thing, you are attacking their balance sheets. And as that ball continues to roll downhill, uh, it's just unlikely, especially... Yeah, there, there's people are throwing out comments about Operation Chokepoint 2.0 and all this stuff. But if you really take the thousand foot view, I'm shocked at how friendly the United States has been to Bitcoin. I would say they've been extremely friendly. So we're also talking about reversing that entire trend, which is a huge ship with a rudder that can't move all that quickly. It just seems so unlikely. Now, I, I still factor this in. I think it is a viable question to ask. I mean, we, as you said, Josh, there is some historical precedent. I mean, they did forbid legitimately holding the escape valve the last time things really debased with Executive Order 6102, and, and they could do harm. I mean, if they really went after exchanges and they really went after the spots where people onboard, it would really affect the value, at least in the short and medium term. But, but long term, good luck. One. You know what? Uh, most of you guys have probably seen Lynn Olden's release a new book. We ordered. I've not read the book yet. It is definitely one that is like up so on excited. my list, probably in first place, ready to read. But one of the things she says on the back is politics can affect things temporarily and locally, but technology is what drives things forward permanently and globally. Mm, what a great quote. And I think this is a really good point as to kind of what you're saying, because we can have 10 politicians in a row that can try and ban the on-ramps and off-ramps of Bitcoin. All we need is someone like JFK that has a four-year term that says, let Bitcoin go free and let it rocket and everyone in the US starts to adopt Bitcoin and, and there's no going back from that. And I think that that's just where politics can temporarily impede things, but in the long-term technology always rules. The other interesting um, discussion that uh, I've been involved in uh, just recently is uh, this, this idea about high net worth individuals have been seeking this exact asset for jurisdictional arbitrage for centuries. So if you're a high net worth individual, you're largely beholden to whatever jurisdiction you reside in for your asset allocation. So you've got to buy property in your backyard. You've got to buy, you know, you can't always get access to property in other markets. Same with with stocks. You, you've got to put a lot of trust in third-party institutions in order to house them for you, particularly if you want um, exposure to shares outside of your jurisdiction. Not always can you be the, the certificate holder for the bonds or, or the shareholders. So it's starting to get a lot of interest from uh, asset allocation, jurisdictional arbitrage perspective, where I want to hold a significant amount of my wealth outside of the country I reside in. And the jurisdictional arbitrage, like Bitcoin exists nowhere and everywhere all at the same time. So in order for you to allocate outside of this authoritarian government you may live within, it is the perfect solution for this um, leverage in this jurisdictional arbitrage for asset allocation and, and wealth protection. Mm. Yeah. If offshore banking is horse and buggy, Bitcoin is the automobile for sure. And this may not be a popular thing talking about Bitcoin just being for the plebs and from the ground up, but I do think that this is a super wealthy person's wet dream in some regards, because if you're wildly rich, okay, we're talking you're worth, you know, decade of hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. All you're looking to do, guys, is preserve that buying power. Once you get to a certain point 
where you're so rich, you can do whatever the fuck you want. You're just looking to maintain. And if this thing does get to a stable, less volatile future where it's just keeping up with the units in the system, that's going to be really appealing to a lot of really powerful, wealthy folks. You know what else has happened to a lot of powerful, wealthy folks in the last 10 to 12 years or so? The banks in Switzerland have changed the way they operate, and the IRS can basically put them on like a sock puppet like they can do for anyone else in the world, which never used to be the case in the past, at least according to the Wolf of Wall Street, which is where I did the research on this comment. But <laughs> Switzerland's wearing the world's wealthy like a sock puppet. That's a good argu- that's an article title yeah, right there. It is. Uh, the point I'm making, though, is that Bitcoin allows these people to keep their money outside of the system, like we've said over and over again. But when you are, this is literally a Swiss bank account for anybody. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to go to Switzerland. You don't have to know, have a Swiss relative with a European passport. You just need to buy some Bitcoin and you have all of the same benefits that all those super rich people did when they were embezzling money and putting it in Switzerland by flying it on, you know, the tits of some hot blonde, um, and the wolf in the eighties you can do the exact same thing. You don't even need, you don't need a blonde tits, an airplane or a Swiss banker. You just need to buy some Bitcoin. You do not need an ant overseas with a hairy pussy to have access to a Swiss. And you don't have account. to do coke and try to fuck her. <laughs> um, <laughs> that one. Well said. Well said. Maybe in the most profound segment of the episode. Yeah, that was. Uh, well, anything to add here before I go to another one? <laughs> guys, haven't seen the Wolf uh, of Wall Street enough. By the way, we've been getting more messages, guys, from people that tell us we're too vulgar. And our language is inappropriate. So that one's not going to help. I'm guessing we're going to get a couple of emails. That's probably the worst one we've ever done right there. What are they expecting from a couple of career firefighters who say in the introduction, we talk shit? I mean, what's the expectation? It's kind of mind blowing that people get so bad. I mean, I get it. Like you're probably, they're probably sitting in their car on a road trip listening with their kids and like, this is all pretty tame. And then suddenly they talk about (laughs) Margot Robbie, you know, and... (laughs) The Wolf of Wall Street getting fucked and, and getting <laughs> dollars taped to her bush and sent to Switzerland. Yeah. Sudden, <laughs> they're like, what like, the holy fuck is shit. this? Yeah. Sorry. What's a hairy bush, mom? Uh, sorry to parents that were listening on a road trip. We apologize. The dad is going to quickly be skipping the like 30 second button to like skip ahead on this bit. For sure. <laughs> All right, let's relent now. Let's give him a break. Next one. We can, we can take this one out quickly, I think, but it needs to be said. I've heard it recurring more recently. Bitcoin is a bubble. My first comments on that, if that's the case, it's the longest and most repetitive bubble in human history. Uh, Yes, if you're looking at a linear chart of the last two and a half years, it might appear that way. But when you zoom out and you look at the cycles and the fact that this thing dies and lives again, it pulls the old Jesus resurrection move over and over again. We can prove this one, though an entire other segment of people mad at us now. Yeah, you're right. We've pissed everyone off in this episode <laughs> now. Um, I think we'll, we'll link this down in the notes too. Bitcoin obituaries. But yeah, when you look at a long-term log chart, you see a completely different picture. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in the last major liquidity crisis. We were down at $3,000. We're, we're trading in the upper 20s near 30 and euphoria is mostly wrenched. And I mean, just looking at these cycles, you go from zero to 20 bucks, you get a a 50x banger after that from the last high, then you get a 20x banger. We just went up to almost $70,000, guys, trillion dollar market cap. Yes, it's one of the most volatile assets on the planet. You can say it's a balloon that inflates and deflates, but you certainly can't say it pops because the thing just keeps getting bigger. And this is kind of one of those things, I'll close my comments here by just saying, people are just going to need time to see this. For someone that 
got introduced to Bitcoin in the last cycle, they're not really going to believe this reality, right? The reality of Bitcoin's scarcity and value proposition until they see it reach all-time highs again. Price is the great teacher. And when people realize finally, oh my gosh, this is different than other you know, periods mm. of hollow euphoria, that's when it really clicks in. I think it's also really important to note that many of these other assets we're looking at, whether it is, and this kind of ties into the volatility aspect as well, when we're talking about Bitcoin as a bubble, when we're looking at whether it's equities, whether we're looking at gold, whether we're looking at real estate, whether we're looking at bonds, all of these markets are fully saturated. And so you're only really getting movement in these markets when you get monetary expansion. Bitcoin is not only getting movement in these markets when we get monetary expansion and monetary contraction, but on top of that, you're also getting adoption. And Bitcoin is so incredibly disruptive that it's basically stealing capital from all of these other assets. And Bitcoin, as many of us have described uh, and many others describe on kind of this show, Bitcoin has the potential to be a multi-trillion, if not hundred trillion dollar asset. So over time, we're just going to continue to see this bubble expand and expand and expand as it continues to disrupt all these other technologies and steal capital from other, other assets. Yeah, volatility is no doubt the hardest thing for most newcomers to, to grok and, and to get comfortable with. Um, and I, you know, many argue that the volatility is going to smooth out over time. But on the flip side of that, I think volatility to the upside, if we look at back at, at, the, at the last couple of years, we've had the most supply available um, and the least amount of demand, and that is flipping. So supply is getting um, more scarce while demand's increasing. And what the price movements that we've seen to the upside in Bitcoin's history has been largely driven by retail, um, the liquidity available from, from retail and the injection of, of retail participants wanting to get exposure to this. I was only thinking about this the other day, what it's going to look like. Volatility to the upside could be absolutely face-melting once institutional funds really start to hit home. <laughs> when yes, these <laughs> capital allocators start to actually want to get exposure to this. And we're and they're behold um, they're 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 hamstrung at the moment. They're in handcuffs because the regulatory framework doesn't exist yet. And and a lot of this is US based. Like there are ETFs in other jurisdictions, but most of the capital allocation comes through the US regulatory framework. And this filters down globally. So holy shit, when this BlackRock ETF eventually gets approved, It'd be crazy. that is going to, it could be a face melting rip up and the volatility to the upside could be something we haven't even witnessed to date. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that day. It's going to be fun. I think this is indicative of every new technology that, you know, ever comes to fruition and then people watch it and have very, very dim ideas. Most people don't understand it. I mean, you can go through the internet, electricity. You can see back, you know, 120 years ago when people were first understanding what this mysterious force was that was moving through these wires and how it could electrocute and kill your kids. It's an evil, bad thing because we don't see it, we can't smell it, and it'll suddenly just kill you magically. Um, the internal combustion engine, flight, the transistor, all of these things, nobody really understood. Even the people inventing these things didn't really understand the, the magnitude of the world-changing uh, potential that they had. And yet here we are. Each one of these different technologies building on each other in different ways. And calling this tulips here is, is just crazy. I mean, the tulip bubble was one giant impulse and that was it. People wasted entire houses worth of money buying a rare tulip bulb and they were ruined. 
that happened once there there was never like a resurgence like oh the tulips are back two years later and uh i think i'm gonna go buy some more of these things no that was it it was one impulse and done just like every bubble in history as dan said this is the only bubble we've ever seen that i'm aware of that has repeated itself now four times and it looks like it's working itself to the fifth so just keep in mind that these technologies can be extremely hard to grasp. Even the people that think they really truly understand this stuff probably have a very dim idea as to the magnitude of where this actually goes. Um, and that, that covers Bitcoin, the internet, all these things, the transistor. Lots of these technologies are still, even though they feel like they've been around for a long time, are still fairly early on in, in their tenure here. And a lot of things are going to change. Bitcoin 2024 is moving to the heart of Bitcoin country, Nashville. Nashville just feels like the proper place for a Bitcoin conference. I can't guarantee we will be on main stage, or side stage, or even performing a puppet show. I can't, however, say that we will be hanging out with the plebs. And if we have no obligations, we will very likely be getting drunk. Bitcoin Magazine is introducing a new event this spring, Bitcoin Asia. It's shaping up to be an unmissable experience. Stay tuned for more info. Whether you want to visit Bitcoin Asia or Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville, we have a coupon code for you. Use coupon code BCB for 10% off any ticket to either event. That's code BCB. I think as well, it's important to look at the people that often call Bitcoin a bubble, whether we're looking at like Paul Krugman or whatever. If you look at their previous calls and calling the yes. internet also a bubble, an email also a bubble and whatnot, you realize that many of these individuals often don't have a strong track record from which to kind of stand by. Uh, and I think there's also adding to, we'll kind of kill two birds with one stone with this, and it's kind of adding to the volatility piece. What I think is always so fascinating is that people judge um, Bitcoin, and it's the same with gold. Gold has been judged as well as volatile. But the reality is that when we, when we call Bitcoin and gold volatile on a fiat standard, what we're really saying is that fiat is volatile because people are trying to leave the currency because of inflation fear and then move back in when the currency looks like it's strengthening. All this volatility is highlighting is the volatility and fiat because it no longer acts as a store of value. Mm. Yeah. I, this, this Bitcoin is too volatile, FUD. There is some truth to it though, guys. Like if there are certain position sizes where Bitcoin is too volatile. Like if you're 74 years old and you have a nest egg you're completely reliant on and you have no fresh cash flow and you're, that lump sum is what you're planning to live off of, 100% Bitcoin allocation is a probably a horrendous idea. So if you have poor cash flow, if you're older and your earning years are less predictable, you got to factor that into your position size. The, the answer to volatility is position size. If it's freaking you out, if it's keeping you up at night, reduce your size. Absolutely. Size matters in this regard. Um, the the, well the other comment is that volatility is the market's expression of uncertainty. Very few people understand this technology. It's really early. And for that reason, it's really volatile. I mean, you look at some of the best performing stocks in history. Let's look at like Apple and Google. You go back to the early days, they were extremely volatile. And I know some people may call it adorable to say it's the early days that don't understand Bitcoin, but we're talking about a huge addressable market. We're in the first inning here, in my opinion. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, venture capital, early startups, you know. Um, IPOs, like it's got that kind of volatility because very few people understand it. And we're still in the phase of, of uh, price yeah. discovery. The, uh, the other comment is that 
and Seb, you hit on this, but um, volatility is sort of just the cost of doing business here because if you want absurd upward volatility, you're going to have to weather significant downward volatility. And if Bitcoin has had anything, it is absurd upward volatility. I mean, this is the can be argued this is the best performing asset in human history. You can't have that without really significant down moves. And of note, it's volatile because it can't be manipulated, right? There's no reaction in supply to temper upward moves. And there's no Fed put or liquidity spigot to mitigate downward moves. It is at the will and mercy of the free market. And that's why it behaves different than artificial stability in the current financial system that comes with a litany of risks, debasement and and inflation kind of is the headliner. I was going to add one more quick point, which is building on this idea that, um, because you're obviously talking about kind of volatility and how to approach it and upside volatility, downside volatility. Again, when you're looking at traditional finance, the way they often measure volatility is through something called the Sharpe ratio. And the Sharpe ratio, when you're looking at portfolios, doesn't differentiate between upside and downside volatility. And so that's really important because when you're looking at, say, a pensioner, of course, a pensioner doesn't want to see if you've got five years, 10 years until maybe you're going to kick the bucket, you don't want to see massive volatility in your portfolio. So sharp ratio makes total sense. But for most individuals, if you've still got 30, 40, 50 years left on this planet and you want to uh, kind of build your portfolio and build wealth in an inflationary system, then you want something that ignores sharp sharp and uh, downside volatility, but has potential for upside volatility. And that's where Bitcoin, even as a small allocation to your portfolio, can be incredibly beneficial. It's been the best performing asset since inception, and it's annualized something like 200, uh, 200% a year, uh, which is just crazy. It's also a function of liquidity. Um, so Bitcoin tra- trades 24-7, and so it's often the first thing that will be sold in turbulent times because we don't have to wait for the stock market to open at you know 9 a.m. on the Monday in order to start trading it, or 10 a.m., whatever, whatever the time is that it opens. So we often see the volatility hit Bitcoin first because people will 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 seek the liquidity, and it's also like if you were to make a comparison to the real estate market, like real estate is extremely illiquid. So what would if you were able to price your property every single day um, for, for 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 real estate, how much volatility would you actually see in the real estate underlying? And as well as couple that with the fact that if you were able to churn over real estate at the quick of a button rather than the very laborious process that it takes to sell property, would we actually see property prices fluctuate up and down as the underlying currency like you rightly pointed out, Seb? Often it's the volatility in the underlying currency and people's um, navigation of what they seek value in to try and get rid of this thing that's burning oil in my pocket rather than something I want to own. So, you know, it just to just to tie up that point, I guess it's 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 a function of its liquidity that often makes it appear a lot more volatile than other assets. Yeah. The other comment is when we look at balloons that deflate or or appear to pop, what is the underlying movement and value and development look like? So tulips, right? When tulip mania pops, are, are people still voraciously working at developing tulips? No, the thing blows up and dies. When I look at what's happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem, I see the ecosystem blossoming. 
the the amount of energy and development and intelligence coming in on the development side seems really significant to me. Now, we are in a bit of a filter bubble and we need to factor that in. But this thing is in many ways growing, getting stronger. The value proposition is ripening. Let's think about like the dot-com bust, right? Amazon stock plummeted 90%, but it's still here. It's one of the most valuable stocks in the world, networks in the world. And so for the people that were smart enough to figure out the significance of that movement and, and that idea, they reap the benefits. And the same is true of Bitcoin. You're going to have to weather these downsides, but to keep doing that homework, keep studying the fundamentals. Because if you believe they're still intact the way we do, the, uh, the rewards of, of hodling and sticking with it and dollar cost averaging and accumulating um, could, could be really, really significant. Probably just the the point to tie this um, tie this all up for people listening to this is that approach to dollar cost averaging is the way that you deal with this volatility. You take for sure. a long term allocation approach. You break down the the weekly income that you can put aside for investing and and um, and saving. Is you try and get exposure as often as you can. So for me personally, it's daily. I I, I treat this like a savings vehicle. I allocate stuff that I'm not going to need to, you know, buy the kids food every week. Um, and I, I buy it every single day to iron out that volatility and become the line of best fit through that very choppy price discovery range that we're going through. And if you take that approach, you're guaranteeing that you're buying every single peak, but you're also buying every single dip and you're getting an average price exposure. And when you zoom out and you look at this thing, and we've spoken about many, many times, in order for you to argue that the price is going to go down over time with a dwindling and fixed cap supply, you have to argue that demand will fall away. And that is just not something we are seeing. I was going to add, um, after kind of Dan, after your point, if you guys are kind of finished with that volatility piece, I think it segues perfectly into, you talked about how Bitcoin is flourishing. And when we talk about Bitcoin flourishing, People could say, well, given that Bitcoin's code, can we not just simply copy the code and start up a new Bitcoin? And the reality is, and this can be a quick one that I think is pretty easy to debunk, which is Bitcoin is built upon network effects. I could go into the back end and copy Facebook or Twitter, and I could spin up the book face. But in reality, it's not going to have all the profiles that Facebook has. It's not going to have the users. It's not going to have the engagement. Uh, and so just by simply copying the code of Bitcoin and starting up you know, one, uh, you, the next one, the reality is you don't have that network effects. You don't have the, that, those interactions. You don't have the value proposition, the stories that have already been built through Bitcoin. Absolutely. And I think the, the only way that there's a, com a competitor that has any chance is it has to be 10 times better. And what's interesting about that is the, we, we've probably heard of the blockchain dilemma or trilemma. It's basically decentralization, security, scalability. Uh, when Adam Back was talking about in 2014, I think it was 2013 or 14, he decided he wanted to try to change Bitcoin to make it better. And every time he changed some characteristic, one of those other two characteristics would fail or suffer because of the, the change that he made. And he ended up realizing that Satoshi had either intentionally or accidentally kind of stumbled into this perfect harmonious zone between decentralization, security, and scalability in Bitcoin, where it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to make improvements on the, the, the underlying technology here. So in order for something to be 10x better to overcome the network effect that you just mentioned, Seb, 
it just doesn't seem feasible or possible. Yeah, and just to um, add to that too, yes, it is possible to copy and paste Bitcoin and it is possible to start your own. And there's been 19 odd thousand of these things. They're called shit coins. And in some way, shape or form, they've, you know, Bitcoin was the first. So they've taken that as a protocol and they thought, okay, well, we're going to improve it or we're going to change it. Now, in order for you to gauge the success of them being able to do that 19,000 plus times, it's probably even more than that. Um, just look at market cap. So it's still king beast by a far stretch of the imagination. It, it is bigger than everything oh. else. All 19,000 of them combined, it's still bigger. So, um, you know, that just speaks to the success of being able to copy and paste it and speaks to the network effects. For sure. And how do I phrase this? The fact that it is completely open source and has been from the very, very start and it has not been usurped is a testament to how anti-fragile it, it is to being usurped. Like it's, it's, everyone's had the opportunity at the phase it's been the most vulnerable to step in and provide an improvement. And no one's been able to do that. And it's going to get increasingly hard to do that. Like I think saying that you think a new protocol is going to come along and win out in the, the digital store value frontier of money is just a gross misunderstanding of the power of network effects and financial plumbing. A lot of altcoiners, I think, if I was to maybe throw a stone, I think a lot of them lack, and certainly we do too, but like if you don't have any understanding of how the current financial system works and some of the basics of economics, it's just easy to think that, oh, just a better idea is going to come along and just, it's better. So it's going to work. That's just not how things function. Like you have to deal with all the pieces of financial plumbing that have been innovated on and around Bitcoin for a long time that replicate current structures in the financial system, liquidity, derivatives markets, increasing regulatory clarity, even just educational and societal understanding, which are important as this thing enters public understanding, which it has. The word Bitcoin is now ubiquitously understood by most people that live on this planet. It's hard to get back to that point. There's been so much that's happened. And the last comment I'll make is that Bitcoin is imperfect. All networks and things we build on are imperfect. Like, I'm sure we could have a better electrical outlet. I'm sure the internet protocol stack in many different ways could be improved, but it's not because it's what everybody's using. It's what we've built on for a long period of time. And for me, I think we are past the event horizon. I think we've crossed the Rubicon in this application, the movement and storage of value and the saleability across time and space of digital money. I think the hardest network is going to be Bitcoin. Both of you guys and Josh, you mentioned this earlier. You you mentioned something which is the fact that like in order for something to really come and disrupt, it needs to be that like 10x better. It needs to show significant improvement. And like a perfect example of this is when typewriters came about, they started to jam because people were pressing the keys too fast. And so they ended up creating the QWERTY keyboard, which is the keyboard we use on our laptops today to slow down typing speed, to reduce efficiency in order to stop people jamming the keyboard. Yet today, I would say that the English-speaking language, 99% of people use a QWERTY keyboard. We can move over to alternative keyboards, which improve our typing speed by 10, 15, 20%. But the reality is that most people don't because we're, just, we're used to it. It's not a 10x improvement over the old keyboard. I did not know that. That's, that's fascinating. A, that's incredible. 
Sev, you're on fire today, dude. <laughs> Sev's, Sev's making yeah, birdies man. today, dude. He's flag hunting. <laughs> I need to fucking steal his car more often. Cause he, yeah, you're hot. You're hot yeah, today, dude. dude. Guy gets chased by a bear, gets a car stolen, and comes Fuck. in here chipper and nailing it. Man, oh, man. It's profound zinger after profound zinger. I've got a little bit of a, an experiment that I did using an AI for this episode that I think you guys might be interested in. And I figured because it basically uses, you know, it, it searches language models or just massive amounts of data for what are people looking for with a certain specific subject matter. So I gave it the question, give me reasons Bitcoin can fail, expecting it to give me a list of very expected things that we just talked about. It actually was very different than what we talked about. And I think this is interesting because to me, this signifies that the reasons people are searching and finding out there are probably a lot different than what we just um, kind of give, gave an exhibit on. And I think we should talk about a couple of these. Actually, I think we should talk about one because the others are so ridiculous. They're not even on the radar. The first thing was phishing attacks, which is insane. Like that's just a standard email phishing attack. Like if that's not going to take down Bitcoin, it's going to take your Bitcoin if you're dumb enough to give them your seed keys, but um, there's no risk to Bitcoin there whatsoever. Uh, number two was social engineering, which is just a catchphrase for all these different kinds of digital phishing attacks, um, hacks, what have you. The one that was a little bit more interesting to me was transaction malleability. And this is the fact that, so if I send Seb a transaction and before it's confirmed, I go back in there and I change the transaction, give it a higher fee. I can change the transaction before it's actually confirmed on the blockchain. The thing that was interesting to me is that the way Google Bard described this attack was as if anybody could make that happen from anywhere else without the keys to that transaction, which I was like, huh, wait a second, that, that is definitely not true. So I dove in a little deeper to understand this better because I didn't want to present this without knowing what I'm talking about. But yeah, there, this is actually telling people if you search this on Google using Google's AI that this transaction malleability is a bug in Bitcoin that can cause the transaction to be changeable by anybody before it's confirmed, which is 100% bullshit. Um, so I just thought that yep. would be an interesting thing to bring up because I didn't, uh, it didn't even hit my radar or something to talk about during this episode. But the fact that that AI is telling people that that's a bug in Bitcoin, I think is an issue. The AI is trying to accumulate. Is <laughs> what's going on. It's trying to accumulate. I, what was it? We had a panel... This is a kind of the Vancouver Bitcoin meetup. This is a little while back. And we were discussing this whole idea of what are the biggest weaknesses to Bitcoin? And what I kind of end up falling back on is this kind of famous Mark Twain quote, which actually I think is at the start of the big short. I think it's the first thing that comes up, which says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for yeah, sure that just ain't so. And I think that we, we tend to think that it's always going to be these external things. Bitcoin is going to be attacked by the freaking US military and fighter jets. And the reality is that it's not going to be the US military. It's not going to be the US, probably the on-ramps or the off-ramps. Many time, it can also be the changes which the developers push into the code, which we approve because we think it's going to improve Bitcoin, that actually ends up impairing Bitcoin. And like we've seen recently with ordinals, we ended up having a massive kind of blockage and kind of a congestion issue because of something that we pushed through in the code to allow for ordinals to happen. So I think in the future, with anything that is having changes being made to it, has the potential for there to be issues or things that we didn't really sink out fully or couldn't have anticipated. So I think sometimes it's what we don't expect that ends up anticipate uh, that ends was well, sorry, it's not what we don't expect, it's what we think is not going to be an issue that ends up becoming an issue. That's a good point, Seb. Yeah, that's where I think humility is key. Uh, we're getting more into viable risks, which we may or may not do a full episode on, but 
Uh, I can't read the code. Uh, for anybody listening that uh, I, I thinks I'm uh, Josh and I can, we we can't. We have no fucking clue. So we have to admit that. Um, and so I can have Google Bard read the code to me, but it'll probably tell me some bullshit that isn't even true. Like transaction malleability. Dan's changing my transaction, but right after I send it, I, I, I'm not actually develop. I'm not a dev, and so there's a lot I don't understand under the hood. I have a general idea of how the engine functions. I can look at the car. I can see that it's moving properly. But in terms of how things actually work under there, I'm as lost as when I take my car in somewhere to get it worked on. And so I think that that's something worth admitting. Oh, totally. And you see, what is it? In the big short, again, you see it with CDOs. I think a lot of these these guys didn't realize when they created CDOs, of course, you could probably now look back yeah. in hindsight and realize that these things are garbage. But when you're creating them, you don't think they're going to be a ticking time bomb that blows up the whole mm-hmm. housing industry. You know what I mean? Yep. There was one more FUD piece I wanted to touch on. It shouldn't be a long one before we start yep, wrapping this do. bad boy up. I mean, you got a, you got a hard stop, but um, Bitcoin's used by criminals. Mm, and that is absolutely true from its inception. <laughs> it was true. That's basically the first use case of Bitcoin was used by criminals for for the drug trade but what's really important to note now is like as if you were a criminal i could think of probably a million things i would prefer to use before using bitcoin the blockchain (laughs) because it's immutable it's total every single transaction is recorded on the ledger on the on the on the base layer so if your one of your um public addresses were to leak as a criminal if you're using it for nefarious activity, then basically all of your transaction history for that tied to that specific address is now leaked for authorities to go and backtrack. Uh, you know, so it's I, I push back on that um, purely from that regard. Like as a, as a criminal, you want obscurity in your transactional layers. You don't want um, immutability for everybody and to, to be broadcast to the whole world. Your transactional activity. On the plus side, it, there is. A history of criminals and the porn industry using technology first and basically leading the way for most of the regular normies who just want their porn and drugs. There were some issues in the last couple of years with them getting banned with credit cards like OnlyFans or something, but I don't yeah, know. I think OnlyFans were um, deplatformed on a lot of those payment platforms like PayPal and so forth. You were deplatformed from your OnlyFans account? I was. Yes. My, my OnlyFans account. I'm now yeah. accepting Bitcoin. <laughs> I was going to get my kid off now. <laughs> I was just going to add that um, when we're talking about the illicit activity as well, I think it's important to point out that that illicit activity has been declining like drastically. And so there was, um, we talk about this, we, uh, Daz and I wrote a book called Beers for Bitcoin. In that, we discuss this whole idea of illicit activity. And one of the things we point out is that at one point, the director of, I think it was the CIA, ended up doing a major study into Bitcoin because he wanted to kind of prove that Bitcoin is used for illicit activity. What he found out is actually US dollar, about 4% of GDP is through illicit transactions. While Bitcoin is something like 0.4% or 0.6% now. And it's because again, like cash, US dollar cash can be used far more obscurely than right. a Bitcoin transaction. And it's got no uh, ledger that monitors that, that previous transaction, holds a record of that transaction and whatnot. And so that, as Daz said, there are far better instruments you can use if you want security Absolutely. and privacy. To roll it back to the first principles, we go back to the overarching question of, do we want to limit 
modes of human cooperation and communication that enable crime. Think about all the other technologies that allow for crime. Roadways, telephones, there was FUD in the beginning of pagers, talking about all the drug lords were using pagers, the internet itself, spoken word. Like if we didn't have language, criminals couldn't couldn't communicate boats. I mean, it's, the, the number, the number that of, of things that, that, that you could say, if we got rid of this, the criminals couldn't use it. If they didn't have boats, they couldn't haul cocaine from, from Colombia. They just couldn't do it. The getaway cars. Let's get rid of fucking boats. So it just doesn't make sense. Bitcoin is a base layer empowering tool for human cooperation. Criminals are going to cooperate. Good actors are going to cooperate. Everybody's going to cooperate. And you're just going to have to get used to it because it's a powerful base layer tool. Sometimes they just latch on to anything that threatens a power structure. So, you know, it, it's just pushed back from, you know, it ties back to the energy piece. It's like, don't tell me how to use my power. Don't tell me how to, you know. I mean, the financial system is a, is a, is a great beast. So anything that does threat, you're going to get all sorts of fun thrown at it, including, including this is no different. So, One, I think it's also important to differentiate between the word illegal, although there could be things that are defined as illegal and not as illegal, there's also the humanitarian aspect, which is if a female is transacting on Bitcoin in Afghanistan, she's yeah. doing something illegal. But if you live in the States, that's deemed humanitarian. And so I think it's really important to separate that just because the government says something is illegal, it can still be morally justified if you are a conscientious individual who cares about humanity. He just made another birdie. I, I think it's just to be Seb on his own. What the fuck? You're like 10 under today, Seb. You're going to shoot like 61. <laughs> Jesus. Great point. Yeah. You feed straight into a draconian authoritarian future if you start letting centralized policymakers decide what networks and protocols and communication structures are viable and which aren't because of what's legal and illegal. And I think that's what the vast majority of people, at least that have gotten into Bitcoin over the last prior 10 years, the reason they got them here, like they were tired of this centralized bureaucratic stifling power structure shitting on people's lives and you know not not even purposefully doing it but just doing it because it's a machine that does it just does what it does and it it has no proclivity to care about individual preferences in any way so if you want to opt out of a system that doesn't particularly care about your plight in this world then you can opt out with something called bitcoin and it's at least one one lever that you can pull um, that is an option for you that can give you some, uh, some way to move the needle in this world yourself. Um, we can keep going if you guys want. There's so many more things we could hit. Like, I'm sure everybody's got more on their list. Maybe even we can name a few. Like, for me, a couple that are still outstanding are Bitcoin isn't scalable. We covered a lot of that in episode number eight about the layered approach of Bitcoin and financial architecture. Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme, very common one. Lynn, Lynn Alden has an awesome piece It's titled Bitcoin Addressing the Ponzi Scheme Characterization. She also has another piece titled Seven Misconceptions About Bitcoin. I'll also link those down below. We don't know who made it. This is one that I get more frequently than I would expect. Like, There's no leader. Who, who's in control, right? And it's like, well, that's the whole fucking point. But... Um, 
th- there's a lot more. What else? What else is outstanding for you guys, or or just to name some things for anyone else that's that's curious? Because we, we really have just hit the first half of the iceberg here. We didn't really talk about potential hacks, although anyone who's worried about Bitcoin, the underlying protocol, having some vulnerability, most of that stuff has been nulled out by now. It had a couple of vulnerabilities long, you know, over a decade ago. They were sorted out, and there's been constant attacks on this thing since then. And nobody's found anything obvious or glaring or something that's a major issue. So I, I think as far as security vulnerabilities are concerned, it's fairly safe to say at this point that they're, if they haven't been found yet, they're very, very unlikely to be found. And especially without a hard fork that changes underlying code in a way that would leave it open to potential attacks, I, I don't think that we have any issues there at all. I think there's also, and this kind of ties into the scalability aspect, which is the Bitcoin is slow and expensive. That's another big one that we always get. And then the one, to be honest, the one that I still am not 100% sure on, which I still haven't formulated an opinion on, and I don't even know if we can formulate an opinion on until time, time passes, which is the fact that Bitcoin naturally over time, because we have the halving cycle, how are we going to be able to, with transaction fees, fund miners? And that, that's where, given that mining is obviously what secures the network, we need to make sure that we have a large enough security budget and is that going to be possible through transaction fees? That's that's a big one. Yeah, well, I think what was really interesting in the last sort of year is this ordinals and the competition for base layer transactions. Like that is over time, I'm becoming less concerned about the fact that the block reward will be diminished. So we're in the year 2140. What that basically means for anyone not familiar is the supply cap will be reached. The 21 millionth coin will be mined. And then the only incentives for miners to keep going to append will be the um, the other side of the block reward, which is the transaction fees. And I think, if anything, uh, the blessing in disguise to come out of the ordinal debacle was the fact that there will be competition for block space. There is value in being able to append things, whether it's even a transaction or some other information on this totally immutable um, ledger there will be competition for block space. And as we onboard 7 billion plus 8 billion people, um, base layer transactions are actually going to become really, really rare. Yeah, uh, There's a few things that tie into that without getting too distracted, like UTXOs. There won't be enough UTXOs. There's not enough UTXOs for every single person to have one. So it will naturally saturate, I think. Um, and then the base layer transactions will be utilized for things like really important transactions like high net worth transfers. And we will then defer to the secondary third layers uh, to do most of the transactions. So I don't, I get less than concerned about o- that over time. Um, and some of those larger transactions will be like the base layer transactions that are needed for the second layers. So Lightning's a great example. Opening a channel requires a base layer transaction. Closing a channel requires a base layer transaction. So that as these layers start to proliferate, it has to interact with the base layer, and then they're going to compete for that block space on that base layer and naturally attract higher fees. The comment I have on fees out way out in the future, you know, as we approach 2140, um, is if Bitcoin is incredibly valuable if the drivers of demand are there that we suggest are there if it's solving all these problems that we say exist there's going to be a global fee market that's going to be buying a lot of energy 
back to your point about settlement. There's going to be demand for settlement on the base layer, and that is going to be a fairly large market. This is a dense topic. I agree, Seb, to just close the book on this doesn't make sense because there's a lot of unknowns. I guess I'm, we're going to have to link Lynn again down in the notes because I just looked up her piece. It's called Bitcoin fee-based security modeling. She March 2021, she covers this whole topic in depth, the uh, viable risks and FUD. Is Lynn Satoshi? I think Lynn is Satoshi. She is. Yeah. She's done a lot of work on this side of things, like the focus of this episode. She's done a lot of work on the misconceptions. And when she was on here the first time, Josh... She did say that one of the pieces she has outstanding, she has a lot of pieces working at once. She said that one of the pieces she Mm -hmm. has outstanding is a piece on viable risks for Bitcoin. That'll probably emerge at some point, and I'm sure it'll be robust and stellar. Yeah. And that's what I think is really important, like particularly Lynn. I love following Lynn because I know she's intellectually honest to tell me when she does find something, you know, and that's the path that I, and I'm not going to compare myself to Lynn Older. My, my intellectual capity is definitely not, not anywhere near. But does, does she follows you now. She well, follows you. Made so it. That's right. That is, you didn't that make it. You just blushed. I'm already to retire from X. <laughs> Lynn has that effect. Yeah. She's my spirit animal. So that was a little fist pump. Um, anyway, I trust her to be intellectually honest. And if anyone I think is going to find the viable risks as to why this thing fails, it, it's, it's Lynn. And, um, that's why she's such an epic follow and she does deep dives and she's very critical where it needs to be and very intellectually honest where she needs to be. And, um, like for, from my mind, this is where Bitcoin really started to resonate for me is I did try and break it. I am a, a semi-technical guy. I'm, you know, Ken can understand things. I tried to break it. It took me one day to break Ethereum. When I was writing articles and I started to write about why I owned Ethereum, I, I broke that model in one day. It took me, I did not, after one day, I did not know why I owned that piece of shit. Whereas Bitcoin, four years plus later, where you know I'm still learning, I'm still trying to find where I'm wrong in this thing. And as your, um, your net wealth and your generational wealth starts to accumulate in this asset, you become a little bit more critical around where am I wrong? So you're spending more, I'm spending more time on this than I did in the past trying to learn this thing because I'm like, okay, now it's actually really fucking meaningful for me and my family. I need to be absolutely fucking sure that, and this is what it boils down to, over time, your net wealth is going to increase based on the virtue of the fact that you were early, right? Now, it then becomes a larger percentage of your net wealth. Now, if you go back and you have to look at um, the, the traditional investment model, I should be diversifying out of this somewhat to reduce my exposure because it is now starting to formulate a large percentage of my allocation. My problem is I don't know what to fucking buy anymore. Yeah, I'm only going to want to sell Bitcoin to buy more Bitcoin. And that's ultimately <laughs> Just where do I'm it. Just do it to make <laughs> yourself feel better. Just, in, you know. Yeah, just re, uh, <laughs> rebalance back into Bitcoin for yourself. Pay the fees. Hey. You kind of hinted at this, but um, we should encourage people to be skeptical. And the four of us should all remain skeptical. If somebody is asking prodding questions at a dinner party, don't get back-footed. Dig into it and encourage them to continue doing it. Yes, some of it's indicative of they haven't looked at this more than 10 minutes, but you, you want that characteristic Dig into those questions. Be relentlessly inquisitive. Nothing's perfect, Bitcoin included. Don't take this episode 
audience is just, oh, okay, cool. These guys said they're, they're all the FUDs busted. We're good to go. It's a guarantee. Don't take our word for it. Look into this yourself and recognize we did cover misconceptions and FUD in this episode. There's a whole other side to this coin of, of viable concerns with, with Bitcoin that, that exist and will continue to exist. So I think just dismissing this stuff and telling people, get over it. Bitcoin's perfect. That's not the way to, to introduce people to how they should think about this protocol. I'm just glad that we have Lynn and we can live by the motto of uh, don't trust. Uh, verify Lynn. What is it? And verify <laughs> just trust. trust. Lynn. Just trust Lynn. <laughs> don't verify. Just trust yeah. Lynn. <laughs> the, the other, that's, that's an episode. That's an episode though. The, the other thing I would say as well is if, if you really want to test your metal like and, and test the thing, the, the try and find those unknown knowns or the known unknowns is start your own meetup because we've just started that exercise. We've got new people. And they're bringing fresh new questions to these things, and sometimes you'll get little zingers that you haven't you haven't thought about before, or you haven't given enough thought to. So you know, invariably, when you've got to teach something, you're going to learn it yourself, and um, that's a really valuable valuable exercise. Dad, Seb, um, you guys want to do any kind of handoff or anything before we go? Yeah, you guys are working on something fresh here. Give us just a quick uh, lowdown on that. Yeah, so it was kind of inspiration from this episode, uh, these episodes that we've been on, guys. So um, a couple of, you know, the plebs reached out to us after our um, custody episode and just said, you know, I'm legitimately shit scared of taking self-custody of this thing. Um, I've, got a, I've got one friend, for it, it, as an example, like when that FTX stuff started blowing up, he sold his Bitcoin. He was too scared to take self-custody because he didn't trust himself to be able to do it. Um, and he ended up, like I was telling everybody when the FTX was blowing up, get your Bitcoin off exchanges, get your Bitcoin off exchanges. But he was so intimidated by it, he actually ended up removing himself from his position, which you could argue was the worst thing he could have done. Um, and so that was kind of the impetus behind us starting uh, a service called Coddle. So on lookingglasseducation.com, you can go on there, Coddle service. And basically, it's just one-on-one time you can book with Seb and myself, paid for service, and we'll hold your hand for as long as it takes to step you through your self-custody model, whatever that needs to look like for you, whether that's single SIG, multi-SIG, or collaborative custody. So we're pretty excited to, to launch that. Um, and it's it's basically a soft launch. So that's basically, I think this is the first time we've, we've officially... Um, so you guys, exclusive, mm. hey? Exclusive. exclusive. Does the launch go from soft to rock hard when you announce it on Blue Collar Bitcoin or...? Sure. <laughs> All right. It's live. <laughs> the boner is real. It's here. Fully loaded. <laughs> that's really exciting, dude. So uh, I think there's a lot of need for that. That that's another piece of fud we could have talked about. It's just the difficulties of self custody, which are real. It's not that easy to do. It's easy to do, but it's intimidating, and it, it you can't go into it blindly. Yeah, you just want to make sure you don't make a mistake that could, you know, seriously cost you. And that and that's it. That's the point. It's a systematic approach that we're taking to, um, you know, so we got a consistent approach to taking self-custody under best practices, taking it step-by-step, step, putting it onto your hardware wallet, wiping your hardware wallet, reinstalling your hardware wallet so that you're comfortable and you've gone through that process. And if you if you don't go down and look at like the BTC sessions, a great resource, but if you don't take the time to go and do that, you're not learning all of those key steps. So, yep. you know, if you need to go from go to woe and you need to get this off in a hurry, then that's what it's for. And this is only going to... Um, from our mind, become more needed as we move forward, as more people start to understand this and start to understand the risks that they take by holding 
Bitcoin that is not in self-custody. And we've spoken about this in the past. We see that, um, unfortunately, I think exchanges over time will dwindle away. Banks will absolutely want to hold Bitcoin, offer you Bitcoin, and rehypothecate your Bitcoin. So right now, we've got the, the, the really big job of educating people around what that necessarily means um, and educating people on the importance of self-custody so that you're removing yourself from that ability for third-party institutions to rehypothecate your Bitcoin. Badass, dudes. That's awesome that you're standing that up. If you're listening and you need help, give these boys a ring. It's going to help a lot of people. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Ah, thanks a lot, guys. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. That's a wrap. What a banger. Josh and I look forward to chatting with Daz and Seb each and every month. They are always full of fantastic insights. And even though I've been studying Bitcoin for years, I always learn something when I'm with these two dudes. If you folks want video of these chats, go check us out on YouTube, Blue Collar Bitcoin. If you are listening on audio only, you might as well be earning some sats. If you haven't already, go download the Fountain app and earn Bitcoin while listening to us spew nonsense. Until next time, do me a favor, my friends, and stay happy, healthy, and horny.